sifter.com.au. Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. On Lightmap, we have conversations that explore the culture of games and interactive media, and we meet game makers from all around the world. My name is Gianni. Thank you so much for joining me. My guests on this episode of Lightmap are Abby Howard and Tony Howard Aris, the creators of Slay the Princess, a game that's perfect for the spooky season and gets you to question, really question what you're being told to do. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Before we jump into the process of making this game, one that I think you should definitely check out, especially around Halloween, let's find out what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough, which is Sifter's weekly news podcast. Hi, I'm Fiona Bartholomew. And I'm Kyle Paletto. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 10th of March. We have the highlights from this week's Xbox Partner Preview. Roguelike deck builder Bellatro pulled from stores due to misunderstanding about its gambling content. A 2.4 million US dollar settlement has killed the two biggest Switch and 3DS emulators. And this year's BAFTA award nominations are here. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Articles to read, podcasts to listen to, and videos to watch on sifter.com.au. What is Slay the Princess? You wake up on a path in the woods and a mysterious voice in your head tells you that if you do not go to a cabin and slay a princess, she is going to end the world. And what you do with that information from there is entirely up to you. I'm talking about the end of everything as we know it. No more birds, no more trees, and perhaps most problematically of all, no more people. You have to put an end to her. And from there it can go a lot of different places. Yeah, a lot of different places and the path comes back again and again it's one of these things that i find really interesting i'm really curious just to start with this game does a lot uh with uh, w- when i was playing it i was kind of questioning questioning what i'm being asked to do all the, at all the times and it made me think broader about what we do in games more generally often you're just jumping from checkpoint to checkpoint to checkpoint hitting the markers as you go can you tell me a little bit about your design intentions behind telling this story yeah, I, I think in general, one of the things that we care about the most for narrative design is doing things that really put the player in the moment. Uh, I think one of my biggest inspirations growing up that eventually led to games writing were that 2000s era slew of smash hits from Bioware, which I absolutely love. So Dragon Age Origins, um, the Mass Effect series, uh, Nice of the Old Republic. Um, but something that always stuck with me with those games is oftentimes, like especially in Dragon Age Origins, like it would present you with fascinatingly complex, you know, moral scenarios that feel like they have no right answer. And they ask you to choose, but then there's a button in there that's like the everyone gets along and no one gets hurt button. Um, and knowing that that exists in a game like that, it, it changes how you play it, where suddenly it's less about 
figuring out who who is my character and uh, on another level, who am I uh, in terms of interacting with these scenarios and using them is is like a reflective process to gain like a deeper understanding into yourself and character and more about metagaming the optimal outcome. So like, what are the exact steps I take? What are the exact people I bring here? What are the things I say? 20 hours ago to get this dialogue option here that gets me the best ending. So something that we always do in all of our games is we try and go out of our way to make it so that bad things are probably going to happen regardless. Um, and everything kind of feels equally difficult. So it, it reframes the idea of choice that people are used to in narrative games to be about, okay, well, what am I doing between these two options rather than pulling someone out and placing them on like this more meta narrative perspective of min maxing their playthrough so they get the happiest ending possible? That, that, that's the very esoteric high level of it. What I find really interesting is the way that you've designed this game. You really were able to pull me in directions that I really didn't want to do as a player. You know, I feel like we do tend to travel down certain paths whenever we're playing choice-based games. And I'm curious, what was the, uh, you know, the tricks that you used to kind of encourage that sort of play? Because I imagine it's probably tricky, right, to get people to change behaviors that potentially they've been building up over 30 years or more. Yeah, so um, part of it is we do have that splash screen at the beginning of the game that explicitly tells you, like, you're not going to mess up in a way that is irredeemable and like all of these choices will be fully explored and have full outcomes. Uh, I think there's also something in this one to be said about the way uh, we're able to play with death as part of the storytelling where in a lot of choice-based games, it's like death is very much an on or off switch or binary where okay, I died, I have to replay this scene. Um, but based on the, the nature of the game, um, and I, I assume at this point it is, it is widely known that there is like a little bit of a Groundhog Day type mechanism to it, but it means that we're able to explore what death, death means to the player and then continue on. Um, so a lot of options that people would get stressed about and might think, oh, this is just a dead end, instead just lead to more branches um so there's more of an openness for exploration there um and that's very much woven into the themes of the game as well yeah seeing death as a permutation right and it's like we we have we have a similar challenge with our other game scarlet hollow which is in a long form episodic horror visual novel kind of in that life is strange telltale boat um and in that one uh, player death is not something that we're able to narratively explore. So one of our challenges has been consistently writing scenarios where there are extremely difficult outcomes, but then there is nothing that can lead to premature player death. So you make a decision, you live with the consequences, you move on. So sometimes this is the player character permanently gets changed by a decision. Sometimes it's... Um, someone else dies or is permanently changed by your decisions. But we try to put a lot of balance into the two sides of it or multiple sides of it. 
to make it cater to different people's idea of what they think would be a good idea for the least worst outcome. But at the same time, it leads to debate, which is what we wanted. Right. I think we're the only visual novel studio that puts out balance patches. (laughs) Well, interestingly, it felt like a visual novel roguelite actually, as I was playing it, you know, it felt like playing something like Hades, for example, where you go on a run in a way and you're trying to carve out a a path. And it's not exactly the same path you carve every single time. Obviously, each of those, uh, you know, ways through this uh, build upon the last one. Um, I'm I'm really curious about talking about the the characterization. Um, You know, I've seen in interviews that you've done that, you know, a big part of this was inverting the the archetypal stereotype of the the princess sitting there. And actually that was, you know, the start of this idea. Abby, can you tell me a little bit more about like building out and characterizing really one of the only characters you actually interact with in this game? Well, she was based around a lot of kind of ideas of princess or woman in video games so there's some disney princess elements in there and some anime influence as well uh to kind of build out base princess and then from there (laughs) it was all based around i think we came up with like a are we allowed to talk about that part of it the fact that she like changes yeah she changes (laughs) so she changes from the base form and a lot of those ideas came from us first coming up with a list of like well, here are some fun design elements that it would be good to incorporate in other versions of her. And then from there, for our second release of a demo, actually, we doubled the amount of yeah. changes that she's able to go through. So we decided it was not, it didn't feel like your actions were actually leading to something that made sense. It just felt like she was changing and it might not make sense to people why. So we decided to kind of flesh it out and bring in different design elements and I think that's all I can say, really. Also, I I just want to add a direct spoilers note for people who are listening. I think where we'll sit on this is we will openly talk about spoilers for concepts that were introduced in the demo, and we will avoid talking at length about like the endings of the game. And, yeah. and, and, and be and assured, people who are worried about spoilers, knowing that the princess can change is not... Well, one of the most uh, challenging things about marketing this game was a combination of like we have so much stuff that we can't share uh but then also it's like we we made a few trailers that were really just like here's the first five minutes of the game summed up here's the the basic premise and then the amount of comments that were just like i can't believe you just spoiled the entire twist of the game in a trailer was interested not going to get it now i'm just like no we did not (laughs) there's so much and it and yeah, if yeah. I if I tell you that we did not spoil it, it sounds like I'm lying. So I'm just gonna have to let this comment sit here. Yeah. Uh, uh. But it was fun with the second demo to come up with because it was uh, we would have a princess and say, well, the way you get here, it's very much kind of two different paths. So then we got to split her into two yeah. and take like elements from the base design and split them and. And refine them so yeah so it's like, like power it, and adversary. right that, that was the example i was going to use so in the first demo there's like a permutation you take the knife down into the basement you fight her you die and then this led to like this tall demon mommy called the fury and uh when it was time to expand into the full game there there were a handful of roots like that where it's like we'd open up the script and be like oh god but like you get here by like so many different ways she's going to be different people based what do on we that, do and, and the design doesn't quite yeah. fit one or the other so. so the elegant solution then became like all right so there's actually 
you know, two main permutations if you fight her and you die. And one is you manage to mutually kill each other. And then one is she just thoroughly kicks your ass and, you know, steps on your throat and that's it. Um, so then that became like the adversary where you mutually kill each other and like she's all about wanting to recapture like the spark of your initial meeting. So she just wants to fight you to death forever. And then the tower, which is an even taller, um, <laughs> an even taller woman who just has like complete control over you to the point where she doesn't even need to hit you. She just uses her voice to command you to do things. Yeah, she's um, great. Love her. <laughs> They're both very fun. And building out the worlds around them and, and the various theming kind of spreading. Oh, that was so much fun. I love categories of things and, and symbology and that sort of thing. So, Tell me more about that. How many categories have you got? Tell me about what it takes to actually build a game like this. We have several. so many, <laughs> so than... many categories, more more than you would think from mm-hmm. playing the demo, even. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's mostly just like drawing from kind of cultural uh, touchstones, I suppose, and, and icon- iconography to, to yeah. go for what would something themed around this action be. It was a really, really fun thought exercise. It's so. A lot of playing with, I, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm talking about the art, but. I'll say something and you can finish it. But there's like a lot of playing with like uh, size and perspective and lighting for this stuff too and architecture. Yeah. I don't know how Abby does all the things that she does. Oh, she's she's amazing. <laughs> well, I worked at comics before and comics sure teaches you to crank out a lot of art in a short amount of time. So that's what I'm able to do. Can you paint a bit of a picture for us, obviously without spoiling it, but tell me about how many variations of things that you have. So, you know, for, for example, you can see in the background, I've got a, a cabin behind me. And we, when you revisit that, there's there's many different variations of that particular one. Can you give us a bit of a picture of how many different cabins there are? There's a different cabin interior for each new princess in Chapter 2, uh, which you can see in the demo. And then from there, there's more. There are more. <laughs> I don't think we're allowed to say yet. Yeah, I, 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 I will say that there own. are uh, around 3,300 illustrations in the game. That includes sprites. So, yeah. like, and almost uh, every action has to be accounted for right. and drawn in some way. <laughs> so yeah, so it's part like, of our deli- design philosophy to make sure that what plays out on the screen feels like it's actually happening to you. Uh, in Scarlet Hollow, that plays out as like. Characters actually interacting with backgrounds. If there are multiple characters in a room, they'll be spread out. They'll look the at each other they'll when they, they talk. When they'll they react talk. when someone else is uh, someone else talks. Yeah, reacting as the character would react. So, right. not just looking at them and smiling and being like, "Yeah, you're talking." Or it's like, "Oh, you said something like, that embarrassed oh. me. My eyes are going to dark to the floor." Yeah, thanks, Tony. Um, Tony's the puppet master there. What, yeah, what, so, one of the inspirations for Slay the Princess was there was the scene in episode three of Scarlet Hollow where there's like a ghost hunt that can happen and. The characters who can be present on the ghost hunt is it's just this massive list of possibilities from people you've met over the previous episodes and there's like this scene that it takes 10 10 minutes for someone to play through like on a twitch stream but like everyone's there and it's like 10 people and it took me days to just be like all right this person's talking and here's all the logic for who can and can't be here and for this line of dialogue here's 10 people changing their sprites in this way. And then it's the next line of dialogue. And it's like, what if we did it? What if we did something where there was only one character 
on the screen ever. Yeah. And then, of course, we decided, well, what if she looks different all the time, though? Yeah. So she's effectively many more than one character. But I don't have to make two pup. I don't have to make ten puppets all in a room at once, making eye contact with each other and reacting to lines, which is, that's what matters. I was reading an interview you did um, with Superjump not that long ago, um, talking about how this, the scale of this was a big consideration based on the work that you did with Scarlet Hollow. And, you know, this was a quicker turnaround from that. I'm curious, can you tell me a bit about some of those lessons of, of making that first game, that episodic game, and then, and then you know, what you did to make a quick, quicker iteration about this? Did you just, yeah, put your foot down and say, I'm not drawing that much? <laughs> yeah. Tony was like, oh, well... So the, the way that Scarlet Hollow process works is I start the script, I hand the script off to Tony, and in the time that I'm working on the script, Tony is trying to do marketing work, what have you. And then uh, I start the art from there, so I'm like always working on it. So I had to make sure that I minimized the amount of work that I was doing on Slave the Princess, um, which, you know, <laughs> I still worked quite hard on it because the art is pretty demanding, but not as demanding as Scarlet Hollow, which was on by design. So the paper for Scarlet Hollow is 18 by 24. It's huge. And it's all inked, which means that I have to do pencils and inks. Whereas with Scarlet Hollow, it's all pencil, so I don't have to do the inking stage. And it's on paper about half the size. So it just is much faster to draw. I can be a lot more fluid with it because you also like see things from different angles, which is just really fun and natural for me to play around with versus like always head on and making sure everybody feels like they're on the right plane of existence. So, Yeah. Like uh, slay the princess before anything else was born as a project of out of like Scarlet hollow is not selling quite well enough for us to make it to the finish line of like, what's going to be a five year development process. Uh, marketing an early access horror visual novel is an exhausting task uh what if we just found a way to just like spend the bulk of my marketing time on making a second game and use that as as a means to keep us going so like it worked <laughs> yeah so it's like Ab- and it paid off. yeah Ab- abby does the the first go at all the new scarlet hollow scripts so I was able to write um, Slay the Princess while she was still working for months on episode five. So we didn't lose much dev time there at all. And then um, in terms of art, yeah, it was like every decision we made was, okay, how do we, how do we like substantially reduce the time it takes for Scarlet Hollow stuff so we can do more Scarlet Hollow? Um, which has worked very well. I think you lost, it, 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 it took you maybe like three months of full-time work for this game. I think so. Yeah. Um, like that. that it took me like seven or nine months of full-time for this, which is uh, a pretty, pretty small amount of time for something of this scope. And it's time that otherwise would have been spent on talking to publishers or all of this other marketing nonsense. So in the end, I don't even think it slowed down our other game very much. Well, do you feel like you're just better at making games having put episodes out now? So, you know, to put something out. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I'm so ready to go back. I feel like I've learned so much. <laughs> yeah, I really had to like stretch myself with this one. There's a lot of um, art that I specifically was weak at that I feel I've gotten stronger at. Um, 
the more metaphysical abstract oh, yes, stuff sure. that is a big weak point for me i very much am a visceral artist so very definitely got to test yourself on this one for sure um i think one of the most interesting things about this game and what grabbed me immediately when I first saw the trailer and started playing through the first part of this is this This is a world that is, is fully voiced um, and there are some incredible voices that guide you through this world. Um, first, can you tell me a little bit about how you found Nicole Goodnight? Because I know that is linked to your previous game. It's an interesting story about how you came across her work. Yeah, she was like, we were familiar with, with her podcast work and, you know, she's friends with our composer through that. Um, but she is also a VTuber. She did a Scarlet Hollow stream and we were very impressed with just like it oftentimes like Scarlet Hollow isn't voice. So when someone streams it, they have to read 575,000 words out loud. Um, but it's like sometimes there's readings where it's like, this is different than it sounded in our heads when we were writing it. And then sometimes there's readings where it's like, oh, you, you understand the emotional content of these lines and um, the, just, just like the cadence and rhythm of how they sound. You walk down the stairs and lock eyes with the princess. There's a heavy chain around her wrist, binding her to the far wall of the basement. And there you are. Are you here to kill me or something? That isn't a good idea. Just drop the knife, and maybe the two of us can talk things out. She's right, we shouldn't. We should just drop the blade. Don't you dare. It's fine. We can decide what we want to do after we talk to her. Maybe she really is a monster, but killing someone in cold blood isn't very becoming of us. You ignore the trembling in your hands and tighten your grip on the blade. You poor thing. Your hands are shaking. Are you scared of me? Because you should be. Definitely a good fit. And talk to me about Jonathan Sims as well, who um, plays a, a variety of different characters uh, in throughout this game and, and branching different things and, and talks to himself a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. So I, of course, was familiar with him through the Magnus Archives, his incredible podcast. Huge fan of that one. And uh, I've, we just reached out because apparently he already was aware of my comic work. So yeah, Twitter mutuals. Twitter mutuals. Twitter so. mutuals who had never interacted, but were mutuals. Yeah, it was a big surprise. And then uh, he uh, said yes. Yeah, he that liked the amazed. pitch and said yes. Yeah. And that yes. was probably the, the cleanest casting process yeah. anyone has ever gone through for any game ever. Both he and Nicole were our first picks. so And we asked them and yes. they said yes, <laughs> and that they both did an excellent job. So what, what did they bring to the characters that you didn't expect? I feel that Nicole has like, I mean, she needed an incredible range and then she did have an incredible range. Like the, the princess changes so thoroughly that you just have to be 10 different people. So she did it. <laughs> she absolutely did. She understood what the characters wanted. Uh, because they're so driven by desire. So, yeah. With Johnny, uh, it should be clear from his other work, but he's got such a great sense for comedy. Uh, he's very, very funny. Uh, I think something that also always stood out to me when we were doing recording sessions with him is like, and again, I, I suppose you would expect this from like the person who wrote the Magnus Archives, which is a 200 episode long, like, 
multi-season, single plot line, but also an anthology horror podcast. So like a lot of details to keep straight. Just like his ability to, for a given route, read three or four lines of dialogue out of context and then just immediately understand, okay, yeah, this this chapter is about this. These are the situations you're in. And like, I don't know, it was, it was like he was living in our heads on those recording calls, which was fantastic. Yeah, it's very much what you want out of somebody who has to read out yeah. the whole script. So. Just a, like an instant understanding of everything. Like he, he hasn't played the game yet because uh, he... I would never be able to play something that I did voice work for. And I think what he's told us is like, it takes four years for him to put his voice in a project to then be able to visit it. And if he does it before that, he's just negging himself about his performance the whole time. Um, but it's like, so he, he only knows his side of dialogue from the game and yet has a very, without us telling him, a very thorough understanding of the entire story, which is remarkable can you tell me a little bit about what player experience has been like that you've been observing you've watched people the game is out people can play it um you've had it at a number of conventions and things and the demo has been available can you tell me what has surprised you about the people who play the game and, and what they've gotten out of it so far i think i'm surprised we've seen so much fun variability in the first decisions that people make i think a lot of people think that they're making the obvious choice that everyone must make, but our data suggests that that is not the case. And uh, our like anecdotal data as well suggests that people make a lot of choices and they make a very wide range of decisions. And it's really, really interesting to see how, like kind of what someone's baseline assumptions are about how someone would play a game like this. Yeah, I think it's also just like deeply resonated with a lot more people than uh, we thought it would. Um, we're, we're very happy with the game we made and it wound up being exactly the game we made. And I think this is the first project I've ever worked on where I'll watch a playthrough or I'll look at it and not be stuck in editor brain of, I should change this or we should change this or we should do this differently. Um, but it's still, it's still very nice and pleasant surprise that, uh, so many people are connecting with it. You talked a little bit about some of that data, and I'm curious, you know, are there choices that you thought would be more common but aren't? I don't think so. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't really go into this with any expectations myself. <laughs> it was fully a, it is in your hands now, and I have no idea how people are going to react. Yeah, there's some, um, I'll, just, I'll just yell the word spoiler skip ahead by like a minute or something. Um, so one thing that surprised me is like there ever all but one of the chapter two princesses has at least one chapter three that you can get to. And there has been a surprisingly large number of people who do not see those. Um, I, I thought that they would be, kind of more commonly found I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that breakdown because they yeah. feel like these and fun people, little secrets to find and if people are still enjoying it even without knowing that there are indeed further forms yeah but I feel very happy about that uh, yeah no it's just it's, it's one of those things where it's like when we were doing our alpha testing some people uh, a couple people mentioned uh, chapter threes, and then there were a bunch of people who were like, what do you mean? I did not see any of them. And I was like, oh, 
Yeah, like there are so many ways to see this game and not see nearly as much as I mean, it's designed around you not seeing everything. Yeah. Um, to kind of feel like this is a unique experience, and I feel it very much is. I don't think I see a lot of people uh, making the same choices in it as anyone else. So that's interesting. Yeah, the spread of achievements. Where do you go from here? What has this taught you? Oh, I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons. I feel like it's just kind of a constant leveling up every time I finish a big project. So I feel that pretty significantly here. I've learned that I'm tired of uh, crunch and self-imposed deadlines. It only gets worse every time. We're getting older. Nah, I think we can't we're, be doing I think we're done anymore. with it now. <laughs> there's there's a thing with being horror devs where there's an intense pressure to have something ready in time for Halloween. Yeah, so then you wind up saying, it would be great if we had another week, but we don't have another week because October is about to end. So Steam gifted us another week by taking too long to certify our launch build. Or, you know, another three, three days. days. Hey, we added a lot in those three days. It was a good three days. Um, it's why I don't feel like there's space for more edits at this point, because we, we got that in. But, yeah, there, there is also this other thing with games marketing where uh, I, I don't know how many people are aware of what this looks like from a developer's side, but you have to pick release dates early, like far in advance. So it's like for Slay the Princess's release date, um, we had to pitch the announcement trailer for for the release date to a bunch of events. Um, you know, Summer Game Fest, alas, did not want it. But uh, you know, what are you gonna do? Uh, we wound up going with um, Fear Fest, which was which was great. But it's like they needed they needed all of the information by like early to mid July. And then they needed that trailer finalized by the start of August because they have this whole show that they're putting together and they need to verify everything. They have to figure out, oh, this person had to drop out. So we need more time to get someone else on board and give them time to do a trailer. Which also meant that the trailer had to be done before a lot of the roots that were referenced in the trailer were actually finished. Yeah, the game, so, so. so some of that art's inaccurate. Yeah. But, but it means like for a game like Slay the Princess, which had a remarkably short development cycle, we started work on it in May of last year. Did you know? And and that was like playing around with a prototype on my end. And then it was like in early July, we spent a week in a self-imposed game jam getting the demo out. We launched that, and then we spent four months finishing Scarlet Hollow episode four, and then you know recovered from that and then we didn't start full-time development for slay the princess until february of this year so it's like 12 13 months of labor total but then maybe seven months of full-time work so it's like for something like that okay like having a, a release date a few months out means yeah it's like no idea i, I, I don't know <laughs> sure we've said october 20th uh, mm-hmm. we could definitely do that but there, there's no other way to do it um, aside from like delaying far, far, far too long. And of course, when you're, when you're anyone in games, but especially as an indie studio, it's like you, you have to also focus on doing things that keep the lights on and keep the studio going. So like, I think we, we could have worse come to, uh, came to worse, like roughed it out until like February of, of next year. Um, if we had to bump the release date, there's also the thing where 
after you, October. You do, the holiday season. Yeah, you do not want to release a new game in November or December. Uh, you miss the entire award cycle. Um, you're flattened by, um, you know, big seasonal sales. Uh, sometimes AAA titles tend to dominate that space a little because they know they can kick ass during the winter sales. So it's like it's an indie. It's all right. Well, October is the last time you can do it. You should probably release a game in August. And if you can't make October, sorry, you're bumping to February or no press is going to cover you. So that's the other component, too, because in November or December, everyone is doing their game of their the year list. They're all doing their rankings and their wrap up. So they don't have time to cover. Things. Um, so somehow we pulled off that release date that we had to pick and announce uh, halfway into our dev cycle. And it worked out great, but uh, oof, it is a deadly space to navigate. It's an interesting one. I, you know, when you started talking about this, you saying you wanted to get in around October, and I was thinking mostly it was because, yeah, we've got to line it up with Halloween, but obviously there's so much more that goes into it in the background that Halloween's almost like a lucky coincidence in a way. Um, yeah. what, what, what will you be working on next? Will you be making more of these style of games in between the larger Scarlet Hollow project or or do you just go into Scarlet Hollow and that's it? Just right back into Scarlet Hollow. I am so excited to get back on it. Yeah. And then we're just going to do it until it's done. So um, like, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who have supported us for many years on Scarlet Hollow. Uh, and we, we are aware that we uh, asked them for a great deal of patience to let us without getting too mad, make an entire separate game in between releases there. And now um, they will be rewarded with now they'll Scarlet be rewarded Hollow with just Scarlet has Hollow. Not been sold to a publisher that we are just making on our own. On our own time, and we can make all of our own decisions with it, mm-hmm. and it will be better, and it will be faster, but uh, that's what we're doing. And then Abby has um, a bunch of comics projects that she wants to do after that. I love comics. Yeah, I'm going to finish my webcomic The Last Halloween, which people have been waiting on for 10 years. So, yeah, yeah it's that uh, webcomics are not very profitable. So if I want to survive, I had to do other things. And then this is the culmination of that. Living so. in that day and age where if you want to be a surviving artist, you also have to be a business person. Um, so, yeah, like she's going to finish The Last Halloween after Scarlet Hollow's done. I have we'll, another horror anthology yeah. planned after that. We'll probably be workshopping ideas for a game three while she's doing The Last Halloween, but it's definitely going to be the case that nothing enters real production mode until those books are done. Yep, so that's my next decade. Finish Scarlet Hollow, finish Last Halloween, maybe another book which I have plans for, uh, and then eventually other work. Yeah. There are always projects on the horizon. We have fun. we have game three ideas bouncing around, but everyone that we fall in love with, it's like a month later, uh, we find a shiny new toy to think about as a future project. So we're, we're, we'll have to see exactly how we feel when uh, it's time to work on it. Game three is still coalescing. Yeah, but I think there will be a game three. We can't just make two games. Yeah, three is a much better number mm-hmm. than, than two. I feel like you're both very uniquely qualified to talk about this, but I feel like the webcomic community and the online horror community are sort of interesting, kind of cool, kind of weird places on the internet. And I'm wondering, do you think those communities will be able to transition across? Because obviously everything online is feels like it's completely up in the air. You know, it's not as easy yeah. as being Twitter mutuals anymore because Twitter is basically, you know, we all know. Yeah. But I'm just curious about that that relationship with people that you talk to online. Well, 
they're all very scared <laughs> of just kind of the, the tumultuous stuff going on right now. Like it feels like it's hard to find a home for things. If you don't already have a big fan base that you can just like send a newsletter to, then it's hard to get in touch with people who are already fans of your work. Like it seems, uh, I know that when people ask me for advice these days on how to do comics online, I have no idea. The space is so different from when I started. It felt like when I started, there was just a way that you did things and then it worked out for you and you became part of the community and it was really nice. Uh, and then that just kind of dissolved. So I yeah. suppose that there are now uh, kind of conglomerates, but I just don't trust conglomerates like yeah. Webtoon. I, 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 I think that uh, just like a while ago, there was this natural flow of comics artists into animation as this is like a more secure, more profitable space. I okay. think you're, you're going to see, you're already seeing the, the beginning of the flow of comics artists into games, which is a more profitable, but not necessarily more secure space. The median game on Steam makes a thousand dollars in its lifetime. Yeah. Um, but if you, but if you, if you make it, you make it. Yeah. And if you're a comics artist, at least you already know how to write, how to draw. You're already how to do struggling too, so yeah, uh, you're already aware. Poverty of is, is isn't news, but uh, there, like there, there have been a few other instances of of comics people moving into games that have made fantastic stuff. Uh, gonna do a quick plug for Meredith Grand's Perfect Tides, which was one of my favorite games last year. Uh, if you already own Scarlet Hollow, we have a bundle available with Perfect Tides where you can get it at a discount. I feel like that one is criminally underrated. Uh, I know Abby's publisher for The Last Halloween Book One and um, her horror anthology, The Crossroads at uh, Midnight, Iron Circus Comics, has started a a games arm, and they've, they, they've started investigating that. Um, so that's like another area of comics people moving into the space i suppose people with these skills are now seeing what other ways they can use these skills now that the webcomic space is so up in the air yeah and digital goods like video games are just so much better than comics where you know a book that sells for twenty dollars in the store it costs three dollars to manufacture two dollars to ship it to a to a bookstore and then the bookstore buys it for you for ten dollars so it's like for, for every $20 that goes into the project, like the publisher gets five in their bank account, of which they'll maybe give you one, which is like the economics of it are, under, are totally understandable. Yeah, well, thank you so much uh, to both of you for joining me. Um, it's called Slay the Princess Now. It's probably one of those games that I think you should definitely definitely check out uh, for something very different in a, 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 in a year of games which were, have been incredible. This is one that I'm going to be thinking about for a really long time. Uh, Tony and Abby, thank you so much for joining us on Lightmap. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Thank you this so was, much for enjoying the game. <laughs> very enjoyable. You're listening to Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. That's all for this show. Thank you so much for checking out Slay the Princess. Uh, you can find out more about what Sifter is covering, all of the great stuff that we talk about on our website, sifter.com.au, where you can find interviews, you can find reviews, you can find all sorts of great video game stuff from creators all around the world. Sifter is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, Chris Budden and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer who edited this episode. And my name is Gianni De Giovanni, and I'm Sifter's executive producer. If you had that conversation and thought, hey, I want to support some good creators like Tony and Abby, 
well, why not share this episode if you really enjoyed it? Like it will make a big difference uh, to not only us, but to them. Uh, sharing the show for people who create things that you like is really important. We, You would probably hear it a lot, um, but it does actually make a big difference. Your recommendation to a friend is worth gold. So if you can share an episode you enjoy, put it up on your social media and say why you really liked this episode. That'll make a big, big difference. And we love you forever for it. That's all for now. Until next time, have fun. Hi, Chris Button here from DropRate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally here. Continuing the ambitious reimagining of a beloved classic. It's very, very funny. I guess like that's that's part of the silliness, you know. Like you have this these really big world-ending stakes. You know, Sephiroth is a really terrifying villain. You know, the world's ending, and I think to have a game that is still fun and pleasant to play, I think maybe the tone is kind of it's important to strike both tones because you need that levity so that it's not constantly depressing, you know. And I think so having the characters have that humor and like having the mini games and having it be a little bit lighter hearted, I think does give you that hope. Does it uphold the legacy of the famous original or burn Midgar to ashes to forge its own path? Find out on Drop Rate, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>